series on Jonah. And we'll start today with Jonah's, uh, Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 2, um, and then we'll pick up Jonah chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 4 uh, on May 26th. So that's uh, Memorial Day weekend, so cancel your plans. Make sure... I also feel the need to say there will be no endgame spoilers as a part of this sermon. I don't know. My students have been real anxious about that. It's mostly because I haven't seen it. Um, so let's jump right in. If you, uh, we'd love to offer you a Bible, but we're out. Um, people have grabbed them on their way in, which is great. If you don't have a Bible, please see one of the ushers at the end of the service, and we'll get you a Bible. If you're using one of our Bibles, uh, it's, uh, you'll find Jonah, chapter 1, on page uh, 774. Um, 774. Um, so let's, uh, I, I think in Jonah, um, and, and I think sort of fittingly on the end of, of the Just Gospel Conference, um, we're going to find for us uh, a critical message, um, a really pertinent message, um, and I think at least for me an uncomfortable one. So let's jump right in. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose and fl- uh, to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it uh, to, uh, to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, I think uh, you know this story, right? Anyone here, like, I heard this a thousand times. It's all about the fish. Um, you know, and, and so I just assumed that all we knew about Jonah um, was found in Jonah. But it's not the case. My wife, who is wise, said, no, 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 no. Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings 14. It's like, say What? So uh, we're going to jump into there for uh, just a second, just to get some context. Because I think for us this morning, that context is going to be really critical for us to connect why Jonah's message matters to us and how it's going to be a challenge to us, especially in our particular cultural context. Okay? So um, by way of context for the context... um, Israel, the people of God, lived in a nation that after King Solomon, after their third king, divided. So you got the northern kingdom, Israel. So say Israel. Did you read it? Israel. North. Jeroboam. Okay, we'll connect this in a second. In the south, you've got Judah. So say Judah. South. Rehoboam. Okay, now I know the names sound similar, but there's no connection. All the cool kids had Boam at the end of their name in like 900 BC, whatever. Okay, Um, so the nation split because of Solomon's uh, sin, and you get in the northern kingdom a guy named Jeroboam who becomes king. And Jeroboam, for mm, political convenience, turns to idolatry. And with that idolatry, you get injustice. And with that idolatry, you get suffering. So the hand of God is against Israel, that northern kingdom, really its entire 208-year existence. There's 20 kings, none of them, none of those 20 follow God faithfully. And so it's in that context that we come to 2 Kings. And now the king at this point is a guy named Jeroboam II, Okay, different one, a couple years later, um, but Jeroboam II is ruling, and it says this, um, 2 Kings chapter 14, we're going to pick up in verse 23 and read through verse 27. In the 15th year of, um, uh, lost it, Amaziah, there we go, Amaziah, son of, jo- uh, son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, Jeroboam the second, that is, um, began to reign in Samaria and reigned, uh, and reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of uh, Nabat, uh, which he had made Israel to sin. He restored the border 
of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he had spoken by his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had, uh, had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. So the northern kingdom had been suffering, not because their neighbors were so powerful, not because the land was bad, but because of their sin, because of their idolatry. And again, because of that first king and, and now that tradition that had been started of idolatry. But and yet, in spite of that, like God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So he had not yet, at least, destroyed Israel entirely. And so now years later, in spite of Jeroboam II's continued wickedness, God allowed reprieve and relief for Israel through him. The nation expanded. Things seemed good. And this was declared by Jonah. So it it says, like, Jonah prophesied to Jeroboam II that he would be successful in expanding Israel's territory north of Damascus, which is a ways. Now, at the same time, We find Hosea and Amos prophesying against Jeroboam, against his wickedness, and against Israel's wickedness. And I don't know about you, like as I prepared for this and as I come here this morning, part of me would almost rather be in Hosea and Amos because they're standing firm. They're confront. They don't have a good. Me- I don't want sinners. I don't want the, re- the the rebels. I don't want the idolaters to hear a good message. And yet, that's what jo- Jonah brings. So uh, Doug Stewart, uh, uh, an Old Testament scholar, um, writes writes this. He says, "Now we we might conclude from what we see in Jonah, and what we see in uh, in Second Kings." And it's a, sort of an argument from silence, so sort of speculative. So we'll take it with a grain of salt, but. One may wonder if Jonah wasn't more or less a loyalist prophet. That he was coming to Jeroboam II, like, like declaring words of affirmation and success, ignoring Israel and Jeroboam II's covenantal disobedience. Whew, that makes me, like, I don't want to read this. It appears he may have, God may have chosen a nationalistic northern prophet who adopted no critical stance towards the policies and practices of the monarchy, at least so far as we can tell. Now, we've seen God rescue through undeserving and, un, and unexemplary judges like Jephthah or Samson or Gideon. We've, and, and, and we'll see him, if you read through First and Second Kings, we'll see him saved through unexemplary kings. So why not? Why can't God take potentially a chauvinistic, even jingoistic, like extremely patriotic prophet to save and declare his name through him? And, and, and look, I, like I read that and I was, I, it's uncomfortable. I don't want God to use this, this sort of person. I want to come to Jonah and find in Jonah a hero. I want to come to Jonah and I want to find an example. But we don't. Indeed, we find a hard-hearted, sinful, rebellious prophet serving a hard-hearted, sinful, and rebellious kingdom. That's not what I want to talk about. Yet, in this story, God, like, God's going to use them, use these rebels against his will to do his will. Praise God. That's good news for us saints, isn't it? I don't know about you. I get, I get my hard heart on sometimes. It's like, I don't want to do that. And yet, God still loves me. God still can work through me. So when we flee from God's will, when our prejudice, our fear, our whatever gets between us and God's will, God remains sovereign and mighty to save. That's right. 
And God remains for us slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So the example for Jonah, the example from Jonah is one of God's grace and his sovereignty, his power and his authority. It's not an example for us to sort of lift up rebellious people and say, oh, it's okay, God's using them. Right? Like, it's not to say, the example from Jonah is not for us to sort of baptize or anoint or sanctify rebels and idolaters in our lives for the sake of convenience. Now, we may, in retrospect, and I think we see this all over the Bible, look back at characters in our world and praise God in spite of their wickedness that God did his will through them. That we can do. But fundamentally, what we're going to see in Jonah is, is sort of a what not to do, to be faithful and bring glory to God. So you saw it there right at the end of what, uh, verse, uh, uh, verse 3. Jonah flees from the presence of the Lord, which maybe to us sounds sort of silly, but I think we've done it, right? Um, how about you? You're like, you've sinned? You need to go to apologize to someone. As like, uh, God, I know, I know, but I got to do this thing first, right? And you're like walking down the hall at work, and there they are coming towards the, towards the bathroom where you're going. And it's like, no, I, oh, I got I to gotta make that copy. <sighs> right? And maybe, maybe none of us have, you know, taken a ship to another continent to try to get away. But we do this. So why does he run? Why does he run from God? I think the answer is fairly simple. God called him to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, and Jonah hates the Assyrians. He hates them. And you know what? He hates them for good reason. His hatred, his disdain, his despising, his despising of Assyria is rooted in, is founded in fact and even a right sense of justice. Assyria was a brutal regime, as brutal a regime as it existed in the ancient world up to that point. It ruled with an iron fist, totally devoted to rule by subjugation through violence. They were idolatrous to the core and arrogant. And they were and would continue to be a, a, a security threat, a safety threat and, uh, to the peace and prosperity of Israel. In fact, it was through Assyria that Israel, that northern kingdom, would be wiped out. But let's be clear. Israel wasn't wiped out because of Assyria's might. Israel was wiped out. Why? Because of their lack of faithfulness, their unfaithfulness to God and his commands. I think Jonah, Jonah was outraged at the, at the idea that God would seek to save the Assyrians. They were so wicked, he couldn't imagine them being saved. I wonder, you know, what does that look like in our context? You know, I, I think some of our more mature saints may, may have sort of thought about the Soviet Union that way, or, or Maoist China. Think of how I thought of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda as a high schooler. Maybe how we think of the Klan or the white nationalists marching in Charlottesville. For some of us, people like this are much closer to home. A parent, a sibling, a close friend who's betrayed us. There's a dislike rooted in fact and right sense of justice. A, a, a quarrel and a problem bigger than a simple, like, we need to have a conversation. Yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of his sort of rightness to disdain Assyria, Jonah misses the mark. It seems that, and we would sort of speculate for, for sake of argument, Jonah turns a blind eye to the failings of his government and his people, which God hadn't done. But Jonah's posture towards Assyria, he's, in, in his posture, he's so consumed with righteous indignation, with vitriol, maybe fear or hate, he refuses to uh, follow the command of God and uh, arrogantly opposes God's will. 
It's an arrogance and a resistance that, like, spoiler alert, we're not going to see resolved. It's going to remain a question for us. Are there people in our lives, in our world, who we think, like, don't deserve the gospel of God? But God has something else in mind. God wants to deliver Israel, not by defeating Assyria in battle, but by saving them. It will be Assyria's repentance that is Israel's deliverance. Yet Jonah hates this idea. So he flees. He flees to Tarshish. Um, which is a word that's sort of unclear. Might be, if, if you can imagine the Mediterranean world, he's in, he's in Israel, and any number of cities along the Mediterranean could fit that description, uh, maybe even as far as Spain. But the word might have a simpler meaning. It might simply mean Jonah went out to sea. He's fleeing out to sea. He doesn't really care where he's going. He's just trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, which he, um, associates, with, which he associates with the land of Israel. And maybe we've been there. We've been in our rebellion, and the last place we want to go is go to church. You know what I'm saying? So he's trying to get away. Doesn't care where he's going. He just wants to get out. So verse four, God's not going to give up on him. Praise God. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was, in, uh, that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Like, what are you doing? Why are you asleep? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps God, uh, the God will give, uh, give a thought to us and we may not perish. So God's not willing to give up on Jonah. He wouldn't let him simply run. He hurls a storm at Jonah and his boat. Uh, and, and we might expect, and in this situation, look, like, um, most of us, I think, haven't been in situations where uh, you know, our technology is such that weather isn't a threat to us very often. Maybe there's a tornado warning or something. Maybe some of us have lived through a tornado or a hurricane. But this is not a thing that we deal with. But sailing, it, it was super primitive at this point. Any, like, any, sti- any stiff breeze is going gonna, is gonna to make them uncomfortable. And here they have a tempest, a storm, a hurricane, whatever. Like a massive storm is coming up, and they're going, we're all going to die. When the sailors on your boat are going, we're all going to die, you ought to be nervous, right? And you would think, given, given the options available to them, you would think that the prophet of God would be the one to go, guys, let's pray. But no, Joe's asleep. And when, the, and when the, the, the captain comes down and wake up, man, you better be praying. We're in trouble here. Jonah's like, eh. it's like, whatever. So the sailors, verse 7, said, come, let us cast lots. Let's uh, uh, sort of throw dice. Let's try to figure out what the problem is. Uh, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us, on on whose account um, this evil has come upon us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? Uh, What is your country? And uh, and, and of what people are you? And they said, and Jonah says to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said, what is this that you have done? For, he knew, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord uh, because he had told them. So just like tensions rising with the water, with the waves. As the ship gets closer and closer to sinking. And yet Jonah remains calm. Not just calm, he remains arrogant. He's almost smug to the sailors. 
Because he's like, well, I know what's happening. You idol-worshiping sailors, like ignorant fools. I worship God of heaven and earth, the one who made the sea and the dry land. I know why this, this, uh, uh, this storm is here. And they're like, you don't think this is a problem? He's like, you cry out to your idols all you want. It's not going to do you any good. I serve the real God. Excuse me? There's no change in Jonah's heart. Verse 11. They said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may calm down for us? What What do we do? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode back, trying to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out, now, now, now these idolatrous sailors are now calling out to the Lord. Oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked him up, and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, then the, men the sailors, these idol-worshiping Gentiles, feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, I remember as a kid, even, even up to recently, thinking Jonah's being sort of heroic at this point. Guys, I know what will solve it. Just throw me over. Throw me over. It's my life for yours. Let me do this for you. I don't, I don't think that's his attitude at all. Jonah desires death, not deliverance. He is so caught up in his righteous indignation, his sense that he's more just than God, he so hates his enemies that he would rather die than do the will of God. So he says this to the sailor. He wants wants a sailor-assisted suicide. (laughs) He wants, like, he knows, he knows that if he kills himself, that's sin. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to sin himself like that. He wants to get these pagans to sin for him because he's hoping that they, well, they're already sinners. You guys do this for me. I don't have to preach the gospel to, any, to, to you all. I don't have to preach the gospel to Assyria, and I can just die in peace. And the sailors, they're like, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. They start rowing, right? They start, we'll, just, we'll just try to get back to land. The guy's like, no, nope, no, nope. push him back, push him back. And we're going to see in a minute in chapter two that Jonah knows his Bible. He knows, I, I wish I knew my Bible like Jonah knows his. He knows. He's seen. He's heard. He's memorized, I bet. And if not, he's practiced over and over again in Passover, in the feast calendar, what the example of Moses, where the Israelites rebel and God cries out to Moses, or cries out, sorry, Moses cries out to God, God, forgive us. Be slow to anger. Be abounding in steadfast love. If Jonah here, sim- I think, simply says, God, please forgive me. I'll go. Let's, okay, guys, turn the ship around. I, God will make a way. But Jonah refuses. Instead, he wants to die. It's like, first question. Are, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Is there a person in our lives where we'd rather die than see them saved? Is there a people group in our lives where we'd rather die than see them saved? I, 
I, like, I hope not. And yet, and yet I know my own sinfulness. I know my tendency towards security and safety and confidence in myself and in my flesh that this is a risk for me. Are we planning to take our grudges to the grave? So they throw him in. It's like the happiest drowning ever. Again, God wouldn't give up on him. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And this is the only part of the story anybody remembers, right? Oh yeah, Jonah, it's about a fish. What kind of fish was it? Eh, It doesn't matter. Jonah didn't get a good look at it. He didn't leave us a record. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Long and short of it, it's a miracle. So here Jonah is. He's in his fish tomb, um, and he cries out to the Lord in prayer, in a psalm. Now, this might be sort of expected. If I was drowning and then swallowed by a fish, I think I would pray. I hope. Even in the midst of my rebellion. Y'all ever pray, like, while you're sinning? Oh, man. Like, we're so... I, I can, yeah. Mm. So he prays. But if it were... Like, I, I hope that most of us in this situation would pray a prayer of repentance. God, I am in this situation because of my own foolishness. I'm in this situation because I rebelled against you, and God, you have my attention... Took a while, took the storm, took the sailors, took the fish, but you have my attention. Please forgive me. Please save me. But that's not what Jonah prays at all. What we get from Jonah in chapter 2 is a brilliantly crafted amalgamation of various phrases from various psalms. I, I had planned on giving you a handout that listed all of them. I just didn't get it done. If you see, see my wife, Stacy, she can get it for you if you're, if you're curious. He blends, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 different psalm phrases together into a unique psalm of his own. I, again, I wish I was this good. I wish I was this good. I wish I knew the word of God as well as Jonah did. And yet, he utterly misses the point. He utterly misses the moment. There's a, a fantastic article on the Gospel Coalition by, um, by Irene Sun. Um, and it, the, the title of the article is Jonah and the Art of Being Broken. I, I commend it to you. She describes the, sen- uh, the tenor of the psalm as something like, great is my faithfulness. Which is bizarre, right? So Jonah says, um, Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. And all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in around me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The uh, weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down into the... Uh, sorry, went down to the land whose bars closed, uh, closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you uh, in your holy temple. Those who pay, uh, pay regard to vain idols uh, forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I wish the voice of thanks, uh, uh, sorry, but But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Now, uh, back to Sun's article. Sun writes, 
Jonah began his prayer by quoting the first verse of Psalm 120, which reads, to Yahweh, to the Lord, in my distress I called. But Jonah changes it. He rearranges it. And the word order here, I think, is significant. He, he prayed, I called, from, I called from my distress to Yahweh, to the Lord. He, Jonah moves the Lord's name, Yahweh's name, to the end of the psalm and his own actions to the front. Like, God, I, I reminded you and you showed up. I did it. Jonah was focused on himself and what he was doing. A subtle change, but it initiates the tone and the pattern for the rest of the psalm. In Jonah's eyes, he was the one who approached Yahweh. Jonah emphasized his call, his cry, his voice. He believed that Yahweh had heard and answered him and that he was right. He almost takes it like the fish is sort of an apology from God. We're not going to spend much time in the psalm because it would be sort of like studying in depth um, uh, uh, Job's friends. He's like fundamentally, in his psalm, he's fundamentally like theologically accurate. He's even profoundly biblical and yet entirely misses the mark. I, again, I wish I was that good. And look, there's nothing valuable in being like uh, uh, theologically or biblically illiterate. Sometimes we sort of get that vibe in the church, which is weird. Yet Jonah, in his biblical accuracy, doesn't translate into a right, like in his biblical accuracy, in his theological competence, it doesn't translate into a right heart. He is utterly tone deaf in this moment. It's like, it's like being confronted about a sin. It's like, but I believe in Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Like atonement. I got my theories. I got my end times. The game like on point. Yeah, but dude, you got sin. So, so God, the fish hears him and is like physically ill by his response. <laughs> right? Like, you ever have that conversation? You were like, dude, your self-righteousness is so, like, I'm going to, I need a minute because I can't deal with you. Like, the fish is like, this is gross. I'm out. And he, like, he pukes. He throws up Jonah. It says, God, it says, God told the fish, God spoke to the fish, throw him up. Fish is like, thank you. Um, me like heartburn. And again, and again, like as a kid, I thought like, oh, he's being, he's being, you know, ejected from the fish. Like this is salvation for, for Jonah. And it is, but it's not that simple. This word vomit comes up a number of times in the Old Testament. And it's almost always a metaphor for judgment. It's a metaphor for judgment. Um, we see it in Leviticus 18. You don't have to turn there. But let, me, let me give it to you uh, just real quick. Um, God is telling Israel, he's preparing Israel to enter into the promised land. And he, he says to them, uh, basically, look, the Canaanites are full of sexual morality. All kinds of sexual morality. So he says in uh, uh, chapter 18, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all the nations I am driving out, the Canaanites, from before you have become unclean and the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and the land vomited out its inhabitants, the Canaanites. But you, Israel, shall keep my statutes and my rules. And do none of these abominations, either, uh, either, none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger or, uh, who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Lest you, Israel, 
or sorry, lest the land vomit you, Israel, out when, uh, when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nations who were before you. For everyone who does these abominations, these disgusting things, the person who does them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge, never practice any of these abominable customs uh, that were practiced before you, and never make yourselves unclean by them, for I am the Lord your God. So God says, look, the Canaanites were so full of sin that the land, the land of Canaan, the land of, that would become Israel, literally vomited them out. Um, which for them, it was judgment, judgment to annihilation. They were, at least largely, wiped out because of their sin by the hand of God. For God's people, Israel... God says, look, if you do this, you too will be vomited out. Now, they're, because they're part of his covenant people, um, the, the, the judgment looks a little different. It's not towards annihilation, but towards exile. And in that exile, we find hope for salvation. And actually, in both vomiting, salvation is possible, whether to annihilation or to exile. Like, remember Rahab. She's a Canaanite. She's you know, an idol worshiper. She's a, a, a woman of ill repute, to put it nicely. And yet, she confesses faith. She uh, seeks to be faithful to God, and she's saved. So just because, uh, so what we find here is that in, even in the midst of God's judgment, God's harshest judgment, salvation, like that, that door to salvation is open. And so that's where we find Jonah here, judged. And yet, like righteousness is possible. Renewal of relationship between himself and God is possible. Renewal of right relationship between him and the Assyrians is possible. But that's next time. So our, our question this morning is like, what do we do? What do we do when God calls us to share the gospel with our enemies? And, and maybe, maybe it feels like, oh, gospel, that's a New Testament word, but I think it, it fits here. Jonah's, Jonah's being called to proclaim the goodness of, of the lordship of God to, this, to the Assyrians. That's good news. So what do we do? I mean, more to the point, how do we not be like Jonah? How do we not end up being vomited out for singing songs of praise all the time, all while turning a blind eye to our hard hearts? Do we risk being theologically accurate and yet unloving? Now, um, my wife is, uh, studied Old Testament, studied Jonah. Uh, she's part of the reason that we're, that we're in Jonah this morning. God pressed on her spirit. This is a, this is a timely word for us. Uh, my study was largely in, in the Gospels. And I had this, uh, it, was, it was just funny to me. I, we, I kept rereading Jonah over and over again, just trying to get the flow, trying to get the feel. And I kept having like these like flashes of Jesus. Wait, Jesus says something like this. Jesus says, does something like this. Jesus just started popping up all over the place. And it's like, oh, well, obviously, like not only is Jesus like the, the new Moses, not only is Jesus what Israel was supposed to be, Jesus is also, he's also the, like the anti-Jonah, in, in all these ways that Jonah sort of, his heart is hard towards God, he fails, he rebels. Ah, Jesus comes and he shows us. So how do we, how do we, how do we not be like Jonah? Well, we got to be like Jesus. It's because he's the one. Well, he is our example. He is our hero. He is the one who by his spirit empowers us and gives us hope of resurrection so that we can do the thing Jonah so feared and loathed to do. So two, quickly, two familiar teachings from Jesus that I think are, like, are, will be a guide for us both in our hearts and in our actions to be the sort of people that Jonah, uh, like, that Jonah ought to have been. So uh, maybe you want to turn there. Matthew 18, I think it's page um, uh, 824 in, your, uh, in the Blue Bibles, if you have one. Um, I think you know the story. It's a parable. 
Um, and, and, and if you're, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, um, it, you'll remember, remember it quickly. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished, who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Talents is a unit of money. He owed him, I don't know, $100 million. He owed him a lot. And since he could not pay, his master ordered that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that they had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees and implored him, have patience with me. I will pay you, uh, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master, uh, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. And everyone with student loans said amen, right? Sorry. But when the servant came out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 200 denarii. Sorry, 100 denarii. A couple bucks. And he seized him and he choked him, saying, pay what you owe. So the servant... The fellow servant fell down and pled with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now when his fellow servants saw that, he, uh, that he had taken, uh, what had taken place, uh, they were greatly distressed and they went and they reported to their master what had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you. All, the, all that debt because you pled with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also may my heavenly father do to every one of you who did not forgive your brother from your heart. Uh, son, again, thinking of Jonah, writes this. She, she writes, we teach our children many things. We teach them to be strong. We teach them to be brave and swift, yet patient and kind and gentle. But rarely do we teach them how to be broken. Yet brokenness before the Lord is the fount of these very blessings. Courage and meekness flows most generously from a broken and contrite heart. The servant had received mercy, had received lavish mercy, and yet didn't know brokenness and contrition. Saints, we must never lose sight of the fact that we um, are recipients of an inheritance of grace. A grace we could never deserve, nor could we ever earn. How many of the arguments and bitterness and trolling that happens between Christians about any number of issues, race, economics, justice, theology, whatever, is rooted in a church or church people that assume that they are in the position of the master, not the servant who needs forgiving. And how many, and how many of us, like, like, even remembering that we have received mercy, like this servant immediately forget that we ought to then show mercy. How many times do we come to texts like these and go, mm, that, that guy's stupid. It's like, hold on. I can be that stupid. I can be that foolish. I can be that dense. Jesus tells us this, not to pat us on the back, not to give us an attaboy. You're not like him. No, 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 no. He tells us this to remind us that this is the risk that, we, that we're in. We, ha we have been recipients of grace, enormous grace. And we therefore ought to be conduits of that grace to others.
even, here's, the, here's where it gets scary, even to our enemies. One more passage from Jesus. Matthew 5, 43, you heard it already this morning. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sorry, the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I was, I was thinking about this. I don't know, I don't know how, pe- how, how people like, preach so many upbeat sermons, like encouraging ones, right? I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. I, I feel like I'm reading a different Bible sometimes because like, this does not feel like a pat on the back, like, man, I got, like, I've got you. This is like a kick in the chest, right? Um, I feel like Jesus is doing that to me all the time. He lays, he lays it all on the line for us, right? He says, like, not only do you need to remember that, I, like, I forgive you a lot and still am, and that you need to show that forgiveness to others, you also need to show that grace and that love and that forgiveness, not just to the, those who you might feel like are your enemies, but those who are legitimately persecuting you on account of your faith. Remember Jesus saying this in the midst of a people who live under a tyrannical, murderous regime. We cannot hate our enemies. Can't. He says we must love them. We may hate what they do. We may prosecute when needed. We may... But fundamentally, the trajectory of our hearts by command from Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our King, is love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He says, don't be Jonah. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And I, and I, I, I think my initial thought was, ah, pray for those who persecute you. That seems simpler. Maybe that's a good place to start. I don't know that it is. Prayer is a deeply personal, or at least ought to be, a deeply personal expression of the inner orientation of our hearts. <laughs> maybe maybe, we, maybe the, the place to start is to pray that God would give us hearts to pray for our enemies. And pray that God would give us hearts willing to love those who are unlovable. It's not good enough. It's not good enough, Jesus says to us. He's speaking to me. Saints, please, I'm, I'm, I'm right here in this with you. I feel like this is hard and it scares me. And it makes me nervous and it makes me anxious. And yet Jesus is saying to us, look, follow me. It's not good enough for us to proclaim right doctrine. It's not good enough, uh, enough for us to be biblically literate. We must have hearts broken. We can't go on singing songs of praise from the belly of a fish. We must pray for and actively love our enemies. And to be honest, I don't, I don't know what this means for us as a family. It scares me. It does. In part, like, we live in a nation. We live in a nation where speech, even hate speech, is defended by law. And we live in a city where people come to march. Sometimes in hate, to spread hate. So what do we do? What would God call us to do? And I think if there's any number of responses that God would rightly give for us, but the one from Jonah, the one I sense from Jonah, the one that that scares me, is when they show up to this city to do their, dare I say, damnable marching, whatever the cause, sinful and idolatrous. 
Jesus would have us show up and love those lost image bearers and proclaim to them through loving service that salvation belongs to the Lord as found in Jesus Christ and him alone. But for most of us, it's going to be much simpler than that, right? It's a brother, it's a friend, it's a coworker. And I think it does start in prayer. And I think it does start in simple action. It starts in simple action. There's, there's the proverb, can you, you know, can you give your enemy a cold drink of water when he's thirsty? It just starts that simple. God, give it. God, give us the grace and the strength to remember that we have been forgiven much so that we can forgive much. And praise God we don't do this alone. Look around. No, really, look around. You are living stones being built into God's spiritual house. And when we gather together, the Spirit of God dwells among us. He will not leave us or forsake us. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for us and for that world that's out there who he's calling us to be conduits of grace for. Let's pray. God, may... I wonder if some of us find ourselves this morning sort of metaphorically in the belly of the fish. Are we singing songs of praise in the midst of our own hard-heartedness? Father, may we not do that. May we turn and follow you. And may we find in you, the, in, in your spirit, the transforming power to not only raise us from the dead, but resurrect our broken and sinful hearts that we would love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that the world would know that you are God because of us. So Father, as we scatter from this place, may we surrender all to you and find joy and strength in your mercy. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.